the main female character was so wishy-washy. Um, I just wanted to shake her and say, stop doing this. You can't steal this baby. This is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 151. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Today, I'm having a delightful chat with Maria Rebus, a literary agent who represents the authors populating the candy aisle of the bookstore, gorgeous full-color cookbooks. So yes, she totally has it covered in the nonfiction and self-help department, as you'll hear, but her fiction game could use a little freshening up, and that's where I come in. Whether you like exploring the stories behind a great recipe, letting a lush historical novel sweep you away, pumping yourself up with a snarky self-help book, today's episode will nourish your readerly soul. Let's get to it. Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Anne. What should I read next? Listeners love to get a peek behind the scenes of how the books they love to read and use, and in today's case, cook from, get put together. So I'm really excited to talk a little bit about, I don't want to say how the sausage gets made, although it's more appropriate <laughs> than ever with, with someone who does your job. I'm really yes. excited to talk to you, especially in your role as a literary agent. Yes. Um, I love talking about the how the sausage gets made, and I use that phrase all the time, so it is very loud. <laughs> <laughs> so you you are a literary agent in New York City, correct? Yes. Um, so I'm based um, at a literary agency um, in New York called Stone Song. So we do um, books across all genres, um, but we do um, do have a long history of doing illustrated books. Um, and illustrated really just means any book that is for color. Cookbooks, we do a lot of um, design, um, lifestyle, travel. Um, we really love deeply immersive books with lots of beautiful photos in them. How did you end up doing that? So I actually started out English major, of course. Of course. Quite certain that I would be a waitress when I graduated. <laughs> I was sort of trying to figure out, you know, did I want to go into um, the academic world, which seemed like, you know, one of the main career paths, or into publishing. So my last summer before I graduated, I did an internship at Simon & Schuster, which is one of the major um, publishers, um, and also did sort of, you know, like a research fellowship type of thing. And I found that far and away, I really enjoyed the world of publishing. Um, it's a great mix for anyone who's interested um, in business production and actually creating things and putting them out into the marketplace, but also having a lot of creativity involved in it. So I started out as an editor at a few different publishing houses in New York and the Boston area. I actually started out doing romance fiction. Really? At the very, very start, yes, as an editorial assistant, um, but really quickly kind of moved into nonfiction because that's what I love the most. And especially the cookbooks are always something that has really drawn me into that world. Is New York your city by birth or by choice now? It's not. Um, so I'm actually from the central New Jersey region. Um, and I actually right now split my time between uh, New York City and D.C. So I'm back and forth between the two cities. You know what that makes me think of is a novel that makes me think of Nora Ephron's heartburn and the New York, D.C. one hour commuter flight. Uh-huh. I've taken that flight uh, <laughs> many times. <laughs> I don't know if I could read about it. It would be too close to. How is that? splitting your time between two major cities? I really love it. Um, so I was up in the New York area for a long time um, and I grew up in the area. My family has always sort of worked in the area, but I, I should not say this in publishing, but I really am not much of a New York City person. <laughs> <laughs> a little over 
found someone who really likes nature. Like I need to see open fields and grass and trees. So being in the D.C. area, it's a little bit more open. um, And it sort of worked out with my husband's work being here, too. So it's really wonderful. I love going back and forth between the two cities. It's a lot of fun. Even when you're in the city where you work, do you spend a lot of time in the office or are you traveling or working from home? How does that work? It depends. A lot of the role of being an agent is really sort of um, doing editor lunches, you know, getting to know the editors of publishing houses who work in your similar categories. So often when I'm up there, you know, we'll be doing lunch, talking about, you know, what books are coming out, what they're looking for, what I have coming up, that sort of thing. It's a lot of author meetings. So of course, in New York, you know, there's a fantastic food scene and DC, the food scene has really, really risen recently. Let's back up and talk about what exactly a literary agent does. We know that when we go to the bookstore, there are books on the shelves that have publishers' names like Simon and Schuster and Penguin and Baker on the books. And then we know that there's an author's name on the cover, but there's a lot of steps in between. Can you tell me about what your role is to go from idea to book you can hold in your hands and buy at the bookstore? Sure, absolutely. When I started in publishing, I did not know literary agents existed. So I started out as an editorial assistant working at a publishing house, which is sort of the editor track. And I did not know what literary agents did. And then when I sort of became more exposed to them, I was terrified of them. And I was like, these are the people who get on the phone and yell when things go wrong. (laughs) And they're always asking for more money. And they're always sort of, you know, always trying to sell you projects and books and this sort of thing. And I was like, absolutely not. I would never like doing that. But then, you know, as you sort of learn more about publishing, you start to realize that the role of an editor is to advocate for their authors in-house. So really, you know, when a wonderful proposal or manuscript or book idea comes in, you're selling your team on that. And you're saying, I want to buy this. We should publish this book. Um, Here's why it's fantastic. So always, you know, you can call it selling, you can call it advocating, whatever it is. I realized that I liked that aspect of the process and working closely with the author during the acquisitions phase, more so than I actually liked sitting down and editing a manuscript, you know, later on once you're getting, you know, 400 page Word document file and you have to go through all of it. So kind of naturally it came to me that my personality was a better fit for being an agent. And I really enjoy sort of being on the author's side. You know, you get to work with an author throughout their career, um, no matter what publisher they're working with, because, you know, often authors will move from one house to another, um, from one book to another. Um, So you really sort of get to be that constant in their life and see their work grow. Um, and help them grow their careers. So that is just so rewarding. I know that everyone has their own different style, even agents, but now do you think there are editorial assistants who find you scary? That's a good question. Um, I hope not. I hope not. Um, And I think that, you know, publishing really has gone away from a little bit more of sort of an aggressive model of agenting. You know, I think that agenting as a profession is actually fairly new. There's only been literary agents, as we would think of them today, for, say, 50 years. So, you know, I think that early on, they really were sort of seen as, you know, what you would think of in, um, you know, entourage, like people who are getting on the phone and yelling to make things happen. But I think that has changed very much. And I do know that from being on the other side of it, from being an editor that was getting calls from agents, my philosophy is that a lot more gets done more productively if, you know, we're all there to find solutions rather than to point fingers. I don't think authors continue to think that in order for them to be well represented, that they need an agent who is going to be aggressive. Okay, so I'm definitely not implying there's any yelling involved here. But (laughs) if as an agent you are getting on the phone to get things done, what kinds of things are you getting done? 
So most often kind of the pain points or trouble points that happen in the publishing process, um, they often surround covers. So, you know, an author will say, I hate that cover or, you know, that color really isn't right or, you know, I don't like the interior of this book. Um, We see that often, especially in cookbooks um, and some of the four color nonfiction that I do. An author is coming into the process with a brand already. Smitten Kitchen, for instance, you know, you want her cookbook to really look like what her site and her brand is. So there's sometimes um, creative differences on that front. And sometimes even later on in the process during marketing and publicity, you know, sometimes things can fall through the cracks or if there's been turnover in staff. Um, And it's really helpful to sort of, you know, get on the phone sometimes with people and say, hey, what's going on with this? Um, I thought that we had this plan. Um, Can we get an update on X, Y, or Z? As agents, we've been through the process dozens and dozens of times, whereas most authors are going through the process of publishing a book for the first time. So we can kind of spot the red flags and say, you know, this should have happened by now. Mm -hmm. This over here isn't quite right. Let's talk about it. How do you get hooked up with the authors that you work with? It really varies. Um, So many of our authors come to us through referrals, Stonesong, often, especially in the food world, everyone kind of knows each other. Mm -hmm. People run in similar circles. When I was starting out building my list as an agent, it was a lot of scouting. So I just, I love reading food blogs. I love reading lifestyle blogs. I love reading um, self-help personal growth blog. So, you know, it was finding articles, finding people that I enjoyed their work and just reaching out and saying, hey, I love what you're doing. Have you thought about writing a book? What else is unique about the food space when it comes to publishing? It is very different in that often authors will write one cookbook and they don't necessarily want to do a second. Or if they do, you know, maybe they'll do two or three. But it's very rare to find an author in the food world who will write, you know, 20 books as it is more common in fiction. I would also say that people in the food world, they have their hands in many different things. Fiction writers, their profession is to be a fiction writer. That is almost entirely what they're doing. Of course, you know, many of them are doing speaking or Maybe they're writing for different outlets or a blog or that sort of thing. But in the food world, often our authors, you know, yes, they're writing a blog and they're on social media, but they might be chefs also. You know, they might Mm -hmm. be running a popular restaurant. They might have a YouTube channel. They might have a brand of gourmet meal kits, anything like that. So often writing a book is one part of their career, but not the primary driver of their career necessarily. So does that make things interesting for you? Is that challenging for you sometimes? Books can be really precious to people in a good way and in a stressed out way. But I can imagine how it might not be quite so stressful when you know it's not the only thing you have going on professionally. It's good and bad. I mean, there it just depends on the author. So like some of them will say, you know, this is just one of many things I do. You know, this is extended merchandise for me. That's less common, really. Um, whereas many of them, it's interesting because many of the food people, like they love cookbooks so much that they don't really see it as like less important than anything else they're doing. And actually, most of the time they do it, even if it's the least profitable thing that they're doing throughout their business because they love cookbooks and they think that they have value and they think that it's important thing to do and they sort of treasure them as objects themselves. So actually more of them kind of do it even if it is, you know, not 
the most profitable thing in their business. They do it kind of more out of love. I should hope so. I mean, I like to think the books <laughs> I read and use are put together with love. Yes, they are. They are. Can you tell me about a favorite book or two that you've repped? Sure. In the cookbook space, um, so I just had a cookbook come out recently from my author, Jen Segal of Once Upon a Chef. Um, the book is called The Once Upon a Chef Cookbook. Um, so she runs a really popular blog um, and her recipes are wonderful because she uh, started out working in a restaurant kitchen, actually. So she worked at a few very high-end uh, restaurant kitchens in the D.C. area. Um, and then she decided, you know, that wasn't really the life for her. Quit it all, um, stayed home and started a blog. Um, so her recipes are really this perfect intersection between, um, you know, recipes that are going to stretch you a little bit and you're going to learn something new from each of them, but very family-friendly. Um, she has two kids of her own, kid-friendly and really realistic for the way most of us eat. So I think she sort of does a wonderful job of um, blending, you know, the the simple stuff that we eat all the time, the realistic recipes, and flavor forward, a little bit more innovative recipes. And then another one that I love that recently came out, it's called How to Get Things Done, Except the Things is a curse word. <laughs> so as I'm sure many people have seen, um, kind of edgy titles are really popular right now, especially in self-help. Um, you know, there's You Are a Badass. There's a lot of other books like that. So this one is by um, a wonderful author who she um, it w moved to L.A. from Canada to be a screenwriter. Um, and then she built this wonderful self-help site called Pick the Brain that was hugely successful. Um, but she found that she wasn't happy and that she felt that she was never successful. And she realized that no matter how much she did, she still never felt content and happy with where she was. Felt like she was spending all her time maybe doing the wrong things. So the book is really practical. It really breaks down, you know, how, um, and it's targeted specifically to women, which I think is important because they're actually, it's the first um, productivity book by a woman for a woman um, in the past 10 years or so. And really? Yeah. And the pressures on women are so different. So many more like guilt traps, things that we feel like we need to take responsibility for. And she really deals with that and talks about, you know, how women really need to stop doing less in order to achieve more um, and how to really hone in on, you know, the things, the places in your life where you want to leave a legacy and the places where you're just going to stop caring. Was that always the idea behind that book to make it specifically for women? It was, yeah. You know, really in, in talking to Aaron Falconer, who's the author, I sort of came across Aaron's blog and we started chatting about what her book could be, what resonated with her readers, what they were really interested in, um, and what we felt could be unique um, in the marketplace and really add something of value to the conversation. Um, and we just felt like, you know, there really wasn't anything out there that was dealing with the particular pressures that women experienced, how that influences their productivity and their sense of productivity and, you know, what they're really achieving in their lives. Do you have any theories or philosophies on why edgy titles are so prevalent right now? Good question. Um, I think that for a long time, self-help was seen as a category that was sort of wishy-washy, a little bit too woo-woo, a little bit too cheesy. Books like, um, you know, Jen Sincera's You Are a Badass came out and really said, hey, you know, um, I hated self-help and I made fun of self-help until I got into this world and, you know, I sort of immersed myself in it and here are the things that you need to learn from it. But, you know, it's not going to be sort of a cheesy tone of voice. It's not going to be too wishy-washy. I think in a way it's been wonderful because it sort of makes 
personal growth feel like it's cool instead of it making <laughs> feel like it's something that like only nerdy people like me would do. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, it always makes me think of that old Saturday Night Live skit that was, um, oh, Deep Thoughts with somebody. With Jack Handy. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> yep. That's the one. Exactly, where it's like all clouds and like soft tones and feeling your feelings. Right, right, right. But Jen Sincero and Aaron Falconer, they don't, they don't send off that vibe. No. So they're very sort of like modern women that, you know, they have many facets to their personalities. And it's sort of, I think it's, it's a good example that you don't need to speak or look or talk a certain way in order to be interested in these topics. Yeah, I hear you. So Maria, what does your personal cookbook collection look like at home? <laughs> Way too large. Um, so I am constantly, I get a lot of books from editor meetings, from just people sending us books at the office. Um, so I'm constantly pairing away. So one thing that is, I think, sort of makes me unique um, in the book world is that I'm also very anti-clutter. I am really, really vicious about paring down my library all the time. And, you know, a lot of it is tough because the books that I've worked on, I can't let go of. Um, you know, even if they're books from five or six years ago that I've worked on, I just feel like I always need to have a copy of it on hand um, because, you know, they signify a point in your life and a point in your career. Um, but my cookbook library in particular, I'm very, very ruthless with just because we see so much and there's so much that comes out every single year that if you were to keep it all, you would need to have a separate house just to store it all by the time I'd be finished with my career. <laughs> really? I mean, I probably have 30, 40 cookbooks that I keep in the house. That's it. Including the ones you've wrapped or not including, including those? the ones I've read. That is not bad. I mean, we're talking about like shelves, not rooms. Right. Exactly. Do you cook from these cookbooks or do you look at them because they look pretty? And that's not, I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all. Like I have my Barefoot Contessa <laughs> cookbooks on my, my open shelving in my kitchen. And I just opened one this weekend, but I hadn't opened one in months and maybe a year, but they're so happy and cheerful and yeah. they belong in the kitchen and nothing wrong with that. I know. And that's what I love about them. I mean, that's why I love organic cookbooks. It's because they're pretty and they're a thing of beauty that you can have in your house and open anytime. Yeah. I mean, I cook for my books all the time, but there are definitely some that I cook for more. So, you know, there's definitely the books that I keep around because I think they're visually inspiring. You know, they're doing something unique. Um, the photography style is different. It's really there as a source of inspiration um, for projects that I'm thinking about or, you know, what's working in the marketplace right now, or, you know, I just like to flip through it, you know, to read the head notes um, to lose myself in those. Whereas the, the other, other ones that, you know, are much more practical and I'm cooking from them all the time and, you know, they're all dog-eared and I go back to them again and again and I go back to them even when, you know, new cookbooks by that same author have come out. Um, I think a lot of people, like I said, you know, some food writers write many, many books um, and I think there's something really nice about going back to, you know, an older Ina Garden or going back to, you know, an older uh, Marcella Hazan cookbook um, and still finding something there that you really love. Now, is someone who has worked in the literary profession for how long now? Almost a decade. So I think I'm going on to nine years soon. Congratulations. Nice Thank round you. numbered anniversary coming up. Yep. So after 10 years nearly in the book world, what has that done for your reading life? I mean, you change a lot in 10 years, no matter what profession you're in. And we can't like cross compare Maria who became a waitress with Maria who became a literary <laughs> agent. But how do you think working in the field has impacted your reading life? 
So when I was a kid, I grew up reading fiction all the time. Um, I loved Harry Potter, um, loved Nancy Drew, loved sort of all of those classics that I think many people who become voracious readers, they just, you know, they find the first one and then they just latch on to all of them. And it really kind of drives them through, um, you know, a a phase in their childhood. I did not think that I even wanted to go into nonfiction um, when I started in publishing. Then, you know, as you work on different things and as you try out different things, you see what you get most excited about. And I remember that when I did my first internship, I was so excited about one of the cookbooks we were working on. That was the thing that was really pulling me the most. Taste just change in that way. Um, but one thing that I find now is because I only do nonfiction um, is that I have a really, really hard time finding fiction that I like and that grabs me and that I'm super picky about it because I feel like there are, you know, that my to be read list is so enormous um, that I'm a lot less willing now to put up with a book that I don't like. And that was something you taught me actually in one of your blog posts that it's okay to put down a book when you're not enjoying it. (laughs) Really? You're a recovering completionist? Oh yes, definitely. Okay. But you've described yourself as being a very picky reader. Yes, about fiction in particular. I think I I just feel like a lot of the books that recently were very hyped that I picked up, they weren't for me. They didn't click with me. I found them boring. I just, I'm, <laughs> I'm picky. Maria, do you think that you are still a fiction reader at heart and you need to find the right books? Or do you think maybe it's not for you right now? Huh. In some ways, I think I am a fiction reader at heart. You know, I truly do love both. Um, But there's definitely that part of me that I sort of miss from my childhood days of picking up a fiction book and reading it, you know, in one or two days. Um, And one book that I did recently really love that I had that experience with was um, Today Will Be Different by Maria Semple. So I loved that book, even though it got like very mixed reviews on Amazon. It has like two and a half stars on Amazon. I don't know why, but I loved it. And it sort of reignited me this like childhood feeling of like, oh my gosh, this is so good. I just want to read this and everyone else leave me alone. Um, And I'm going to spend the next two days doing nothing but reading, being immersed in this world because it's so fascinating. So I miss that experience. And I find, I don't know, maybe, maybe I've become too picky and I need to branch out of my comfort zone and be, you know, give books a little bit more of a chance and see what, what might reignite that feeling. What were you reading when you were a kid? What kind of books would you just blow through in a day or two? I actually did like a lot of fantasy. Um, So J.R.R. Tolkien, Harry Potter, you know, maybe I just need to find more good fantasy that feels like it's still rooted in, I don't know, in more everyday life at the same time. And I loved historical then too. What kind of historical fiction? So of course, like your Pride and Prejudice, I always loved. I went through this weird phase where I liked to read like books like The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco that were just very long um, just because I was like, look, I can read this and kind of was trying to just be nerdy. Wait, how old were you? Because I think I went through this stage like 16 <laughs> to 18. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's like that phase where you're like, wait, reading is my thing. And then you kind of want to show off a little by being like, look, I read this a thousand page book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm. I didn't realize that that was like a developmental stage of a certain kind of reader. It might be. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) We'll put the support group sign up form in the show notes. Yes, we need it. (laughs) I have not been brave enough to read The Name of the Rose yet. But then again, I didn't find it when I was going through that stage. I'm over that stage. Are you? I would never read it now. (laughs) <laughs> I have no patience for it now. I would be no interest in it now. But at the time, um, I also, you know, it's half the fun isn't carrying it around and showing it to your friends. So 
I used to have this tiny purse in a big book and now I have a big purse with big book and it's really heavy. Exactly. And yeah. the cookbooks are very heavy. So. Oh my gosh. Yes. Especially <laughs> if you're carrying around multiples and yeah. those just, you know, I hadn't thought about this till just now, but those are not the same as an e-reading experience. Oh, they're not. Absolutely not. That's what, that's something that I love about them is that I think that cookbooks are so uniquely wonderful in print that that to me they're like one of the few mediums of art that still gives you sort of space and silence in your life. I have a really hard time reading on a tablet because I get too easily distracted and you know I'll check my email, I'll check an app or I'll you know there's just something about reading on a screen that makes me more likely to lose focus whereas in a print book you know I think it's one of the few places where you're truly immersed in a space where nothing really can interrupt you um, as long as you're in a quiet room. And it really sort of has sort of that space and silence that um, I think ebooks just don't. And I really like the experience. Not that I do it often, but I just did on Sunday. So I'm feeling a little like cocky right now. I like <laughs> that experience of opening your cookbook and leaving it on the kitchen counter and, you know, getting all your ingredients and just being in that space. And somehow if okay. it's on a tablet or like my phone, which is the worst, it's yeah. just not, it's different. That's so true. I hadn't even thought of that. But when I'm doing a recipe, when I'm cooking from a recipe on my tablet, it's so different. It's like something about the ads and how everything's always like flickering and videos and pop-ups and this and that. It just, it doesn't feel as like, like a break from everyday life. It just feels like an extension of screen time. Maybe if I was a gardener or I don't know, a seamstress, someone who didn't like sit and stare at screens all day, it wouldn't be that big a deal, but I'm yeah. not. I spend a lot of time in a computer and I really like that very conscious, I am changing modes now. Exactly. That's exactly what it does. There's just something about having a screen nearby that I think just ruins that peacefulness. Hmm. This makes me extra glad that there are so many cookbooks in the world. And I think it's a reason that I really like to have them. Like I love to have cookbooks, even though I don't cook nearly as much from them as I used to. We have been pretty like functional around here lately, but I still love to have them on my shelves and pull them down occasionally and just have that leisurely. I'm making dinner from a recipe in a yeah. book every once in a while. It feels good, right? It does. A lot of, um, we hear all the time from cookbook readers that they're really just reading. You know, they're reading the head notes or they're looking for inspiration or ideas, but they're not necessarily, you know, following the recipe exactly or, you know, cooking from it often. It's really just, you know, especially, you know, many of the cookbooks that have very long head notes um, where it's really about the story. I mean, people will just read them in bed um, and just, you know, feel like they're there to get to know the author more than they are necessarily just there to, you know, get a recipe. I think more and more people these days, um, you know, if you just want a recipe for chicken breast, you're more likely to Google it and find something, you know, practical and functional that has exactly what you need. Whereas with a cookbook, you're really there for kind of th th this experience with the author. That is definitely true about me. Like I love the longer the essays, the better, as long as I still get my mm -hmm. pretty pictures. Exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what are a few of your favorite cookbooks? Well, I love Ina Garten, even if her little intros are really short. Smitten Kitchen Every Day and A Barefoot Contessa Ones were the ones I just had out recently. Mm -hmm. I also really love David Levovitz. I think he's hysterical and his recipes work. So both hand. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited that the new Joy the Baker cookbook about brunch, I love brunch, is waiting yes. for me at the library right now. Oh, exciting. And, um, and Ina has a new cookbook coming out this fall, if you hadn't heard about that one. I did not know that. Yes, it's called Cooking Like a Pro, coming Ooh. up soon. 
<laughs> and they all look so happy together on the shelves. I love how her whole series coordinates. Yeah. And it's beautiful. Yes. Those are very well published. Okay, Maria, I really want to get back to hear more about the books you really love. Are you ready to go there? Yes. Let's okay. Do it. Basically, I'm afraid, and the only way out is through. <laughs> so, <laughs> ready to roll my sleeves up and dive in. Well, you know how this works. Mm-hmm. And I realized I was looking up the books that you submitted on your form, the guest submission form at what should I read next podcast.com slash guest that you sent us books in 2016. And it was so fun to see how they really haven't changed. You changed your hated book, but the rest were holding steady. And I, I don't know that a lot of readers would have that experience two years apart to have them be so similar. So I thought that was really fun. Seeing so many books and doing so many books, there are really just certain ones that stick with you that I can point to, you know, five books that changed my life, like absolutely changed key things that I do every single day. So I think those are the ones that when I think about the books I most love that I, I always go back to those. What's an example of a book that changed a key thing that you do every day? Sure. So um, one of the ones, one of the books I've been so lucky to be able to work on um, is called The Joy of Less by Francine Jay. Um, So this is one of my favorite publishing stories because it's just so serendipitous and fascinating how things can work out. So when um, I was working in New York City as an editorial assistant, my very first entry-level job in publishing, um, and I had a wonderful boss um, who came across this book called The Joy of Less. Um, It was self-published at the time, and she got us a few copies, and she and I read it and we loved it. It was sort of the book that I needed at the time because it was my first job. You know, I was living in an expensive city, you know, making whatever $30,000 a year you make as an editorial assistant and really sort of just felt like everyone had more things than I did. Um, and I had sort of grown up sort of uh, designer label focused, very sort of focused on, you know, having, you know, certain key financial benchmarks. And this is a book that's really about um, decluttering, but really more than that, it's about being happy, living a more minimalist life um, and really thinking about what you need, really letting go of feeling like you need to run this rat race to always have more, more, more. So the idea of the book is really to teach you to be happy with enough. Um, And that to me was so life-changing at the time because I did not know that it was an option to say, you know, I don't want that designer purse or, you know, I'm not interested in having that $100,000 sports car or whatever it was. So that to me was really freeing and sort of changed my perspective on my financial life and my goals and what I really wanted out of life. Then my boss and I, she, you know, we loved the book and we put in an offer to the author to try to acquire the rights to publish her book traditionally since she had previously self-published it and had done really well. Um, She wasn't interested at the time. Um, The book had only been out for a year or two. It was doing really well. Um, It wasn't the right time. But I always kept the book on my bookshelf and I would go back and think about it and be like, yes, that's a great reminder all the time to simplify, simplify, simplify. And then cue forward, maybe like four or five years later, I was a literary agent and I happened to see the book on my bookshelf and I thought, huh, I wonder what she's up to now. Francine Jai, the author, let me shoot her a note. I sent her an email um, and I said, hey, are you at all still interested in, you know, finding a traditional publisher for your book? And at that time she was. So I ended up representing the book at that point. So we took it around to publishers um, and there was a lot of enthusiasm for it. This was about a year after uh, Marie Kondo's 
the life-changing magic of tidying up came out. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of enthusiasm for decluttering at the time and not as much in the space as there is now. We um, landed it with a wonderful publisher, Chronicle Books, and they did a fantastic job on it. Um, And now Francine and I are working on her second book. And the whole thing to tie the whole circle is that Francine is working on her second book with my former boss who first discovered the book. Oh, wow. So now they are back together working on her second book. How long do we have to wait to read it? I think it's coming out spring 2019 is what it is. Okay. But I read an early draft and it is wonderful. That's really fun. So do you circle back to her words now when you are, I don't know, making a financial decision or walking down the street and see something in a window? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's the sort of thing where, you know, certain lessons and certain books really stick with us. Um, And after a while, they become so ingrained in us that we sort of forget that there was a time that we didn't think or feel that way. So it's more really that, you know, I think that now I have very different priorities and goals than I did then. And now it sort of feels like it's become a part of me. Um, But really, you know, it all started from, you know, often as many revelations do, they all start from, you know, reading one book that sort of gave you this mindset shift. That's so interesting. And I love that one of your favorites is a book that you discovered before you were an agent and now you represent the author. That's really fun. It has been very fun. Maria, let's talk about another book you love. Can you tell me a little more about your experience reading Today Will Be Different? I had read um, Where'd You Go, Bernadette, which was her first big breakout hit. And I really liked that. I thought it was very smart and witty and quick paced and clever. Um, And I was surprised that I liked it because I usually do like more historical um, novels. But I really liked that one. And then Today Will Be Different, I loved even more. I think her writing is very sharp, very intelligent, very clever, very quick character. Um, The Today Will Be Different follows a main character who's a mom and she, you know, knows that she's a mess and she's trying to get it together for just this one day. But then it turns out her husband is gone missing and she doesn't know if he's having an affair and her kid faked sick from school and is now tagging along with her. And she has problems with her sister and sort of all this comes into play and in really over the course of one day. But one thing that was especially delightful in that book, which I sort of love as a book person, is within the plot of the book, they referenced a comic book that the main character had created with her sister, who she's now estranged from. And it was, you know, a 10-page sort of story about their life growing up, you know, having this rough childhood that they had done together as kids. Um, so you're reading the story and then you flip the page and right there is the book. So they actually, in the print they put this inside of a four-color comic book within the book itself. So you actually get to see this comic book that they've been referencing throughout the book and flip through it, which is just such a cool production detail and really, I think, added a whole other element of delightfulness to the book um, that, to me, it was one of the best reading experiences I've had in several years, just to sort of see, see this innovative package, really. Okay, so, so this is kind of screwball, and, like, it's really witty, it's sharp, like you said, but this isn't your usual style? Um, I would really be open to more books like that, actually. I would love to find more sort of maybe more modern day contemporary books that are a little um, funny. I like books with a lot of voice, with funny characters, with kind of flawed characters. One thing that I found that I really don't like in fiction is um, main characters or especially female protagonists that I think are sort of wishy-washy. I won't jump ahead, but that's sort of, you know, the book that I didn't like. That was something that really turned me off about it. Okay, we'll get there. The Joy of Less, Today Will Be Different. What's another book you really love? 
So I love Home Cooking by Lori Colwin, which is not a cookbook. It is really a collection of essays um, by Lori Colwin. She was um, a writer for Gourmet in the 80s. And she unfortunately died a very untimely death, I think at 45 or something like that, of a heart attack. But her writing, you can see how it has so much influenced food writers of today because she's funny and she's self-deprecating and she's straight to the point and she's unfussy and sort of everything about her style of cooking and her style of writing. It feels and reads so simply. It's really sort of pared down prose. You're not, it, it's not fussy or, you know, overly flowery or anything like that. I think the quality of the insights in it are what make it sparkle. Funny little comments or funny little jokes. Um, and it just never feels forced. It never feels overworked or like it's trying too hard. I just read this one for the first time a couple of years ago. It was my first Lori Colwin and I, uh-huh. I just loved her. I'm nodding oh, along good. with all your descriptions. <laughs> I was worried you would say, and I just hated it. <laughs> no, no. I had that reaction that goes, I've been meaning to read this for years. What was I waiting for? I can't believe I waited so long. Have you read her fiction? I haven't. No. Is it good? Well, I mean, it depends on what you like. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I should try it because I love her nonfiction. I think it's worth picking up and giving it a try if you love her nonfiction so much. She's so incredibly skilled as a writer. That's what sort of strikes me is that, you know, it comes off as so effortless, but there's so much skill. Uh Uh-huh. Definitely give her a try. You know, reading her work, you like her as a person. So I think I would go into it like already very predisposed to uh, enjoy it. Yeah. And that does make a really big difference. If you go in thinking, Lori Colwin, (laughs) you're a wonderful human being. I think that's probably a great mindset. Exactly. And I would. Maybe that's been a struggle for me is that I find that I, when I pick up a fiction book, I'm picking up the books that have been buzzed about in the industry. So I'm so kind of built up expecting that it's going to be so fantastic because everyone keeps saying that it's fantastic. And maybe that's part of it that I'm not really coming to it with, with lower expectations or. Okay. So my mission for today is give you three books that are pretty okay. (laughs) Great. Talk to me about wishy-washy. I'd love to hear about this book that you don't like. What I was just saying. So this is exactly what happens. The Light Between Oceans. I also will admit, like, it will take me like several years to get to the buzzed about books because I just feel like I really want to see, you know, what's standing the test of time. So for me to actually, you know, go out and buy a book, it takes a lot. I had heard about this one and it seemed like something that I would really like. So The Light Between Oceans um, by Emil Stedman, it's a historical fiction novel set on a small island um, where um, the main character is a lighthouse keeper um, and his wife moves out there um, and then they discover this baby. So I got through a third of the way with it and I just couldn't read it anymore because I felt like the main female character was so wishy-washy. I just wanted to shake her and say, stop doing this. You can't steal this baby. This is wrong. (laughs) I also felt like the foreshadowing was very heavy. It was sort of one of those books that I think kept implying, you know, this is very bad that they stole this baby. Like the husband is very uneasy with it. Um, You know, all this sort of ominous detail layered into it that kept showing, you know, this is going to be a source of conflict. It just felt like the first third was build up and it wasn't until, you know, much later on that they actually, you know, the mother of the baby um, appears in the novel and then that creates a little bit of conflict. Um, But I felt that it was a little bit too much internal conflict early on, a little too heavy handed on the foreshadowing and that the main female character just, I found her a little hard to relate to. (laughs) 
Okay. Harsh. I mean, it's good to know what you like. So a lot of people really love that book because it's so atmospheric and suspenseful and page turnery. And to some people, it feels contrived. Yes, that's how I felt. Is it necessarily a problem that you were watching a character making a really bad choice that made her fundamentally unlikable? Or are you fine with that as long as it's an interesting story? Hmm. I think I'm fine with that as long as... The character has some redeeming qualities, which, of course, every good, well-rounded character should. No, I think I would be fine with that. I think I I would like that because that's really what I liked actually about um, Today Will Be Different was that she was very flawed and made all sorts of bad, zany decisions throughout the day. But I found that she, you know, was well-rounded enough that you sort of sympathized with how she was trying to get it right and couldn't quite find her way there. I hear you. Maria, what are you reading right now? Two different books. Um, so I am reading um, You Are a Badass by Jen Sincero. So that's another example of, I am, swear I'm so slow to trends on things just because I really like need to see if something will have longevity for me to finally pick it up. That um, so honestly seems like a really efficient way to me to let a couple years time do the vetting for you. Yes, but then you're the dopey person that's reading a book like three years after everyone else is done talking about it. <laughs> I don't know. Can't you just say I'm too busy with my... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm a literary agent. I couldn't possibly be bothered to read that right now. I have now. an excuse, I guess. <laughs> um, but I'm really enjoying it. It's really wonderfully done. I can see um, it makes a lot of sense that it's been very successful. I mean, it's been on the bestseller list for like three years now. Um, and it's fun and it's funny and it's chock full of great advice. And it's really, I think, an excellent um, example of what a good person growth book can be. That and I am listening actually to the, the War of Art, which is sort of a classic in the creative space and the writing space as well. Um, and I had never um, actually read it after all this time. Um, and I'm so glad that I'm listening to it because the narrator of the edition that I'm listening to, he's really sort of like a little bit yelling at you about getting it together and fighting your creative battles and really being brave. And I just think it's so entertaining. It reminds me a little bit of sort of being a kid and my dad, you know, scolding me saying, you have to work hard and go do this and go do that. It's oddly like a wonderful pep talk to really listen to rather than read. I've only read the paperback and I really liked it. And it is like the author saying, listen, kid, exactly. (laughs) this is is like, I don't want to hear about your garbage excuses. Like, let me tell you what you got to do. It's exactly that sort of like stern, like older adult voice saying, you know, go do this and no excuses. But really, um, you should try or at least, you know, listen to a couple of chapters um, in the audiobook. I actually was able to borrow it through my library because the narrator is just so stern and but it, in a likable <laughs> way. In a likable way. Somehow. Okay, good. Not too far. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay, so nonfiction. Right um, right now. So right now you've got some nonfiction going two bits of nonfiction, but I really, really would love, I mean, a great fiction read something. Oh, one book, a one fiction book that I did read recently that I also really liked um, was Elizabeth Strout, Anything is Possible. So I had read Olive Kitteridge. Oh, um, that's not what I expected, Maria. I know. I, I didn't expect it either. Um, but I had read Olive Kitteridge and really liked that. But what I like about her is that her characters are also all very flawed, but likable. And I felt like every single character in the book, I liked to some extent, and they all had sort of um, strong defining personalities. I really liked the format of it, really, how, you know, each chapter was one different character and you're sort of pulled throughout this whole community, learning about different facets of people's lives through different perspectives. All right, Maria, I have some ideas for some perfectly mediocre books for you. (laughs) Can't wait.
So we've used the word witty a lot today. Also things that are personal. And also, now that I think about it, all your books, except for the baby stealers, really deal with things that happen in everyday life. Uh-huh. I don't know that we can take that someplace, but I'm just noticing. Also, there's a lot of family conflict and disappointment, a lot of family issues. Sharply observed would be the kind of word I'd look for in a review for you. Quirky, maybe a little snarky, uh-huh. a little uh-huh. offbeat. I'm going to start, though, with historical fiction. Now, it may be assuming too much to think that you're in New York City, so you're interested in New York City historical fiction. What do you think? No, I am, definitely. Have you ever read anything by Fiona Davis? I haven't, no. Okay. She's an author who writes, or at least so far has written historical fiction. Her debut was The Dollhouse. It came out four or five years ago. Um, mm-hmm. She followed it up with The Address, and she has a new novel coming out in August 2018 called The Masterpiece. What she does is she has stories every time that flip back and forth in time. And one storyline is roughly today, although in her new one, the modern storyline is in the 70s. And then another, it's some event in the past. It's some famous, important New York City location. So the dollhouse was set at the Barbizon Hotel for Women on the Upper East Side in the 1950s. Uh Um, The address was set at the Dakota. And this new one was set in Grand Central Station because in the 20s and 30s up to like 1941, there was an art school there above the terminal. Wow, I did not know that. She said that a reader told her this at a book signing that, hey, hey, Fiona Davis, did you know that this was a thing? Wouldn't that be a great subject for a novel? And she said she went home and she started doing some research and was like, well, thank you, dear reader. Yes, it was. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It's a great story. Right? I really think knowing you like historical, knowing that you would have some personal familiarity with the history, you would have seen all these buildings. I think that could be really fun Definitely. That sounds so up my alley, Um, especially the masterpiece. Like I can picture Grand Central now and just thinking of an art school being up there. I'm already intrigued. Oh, the cover's so pretty. The modern day storyline is in the 70s when there's the lawsuit going on where they wanted to raise the building to build a skyscraper. So Mm -hmm. fighting that development was a huge plot point in the novel. And there's a cameo by Jackie Kennedy Onassis, which is kind of fun. The modern day storyline, um, there's a character who works in the information booth at in the Grand Central Terminal, which I had been calling Grand Central Station. And she has a line which explains the difference between a station and a terminal. So that was a little bit fun. I learned something there. Oh, I didn't. I did not know there was a difference. I call it station too. Maybe everybody does, but to be precise, because <laughs> I asked my son, who like is obsessed with trains and knows everything, like, do you know oh. the difference? He's like, yeah, a terminal is the end. The terminal is the destination. <laughs> the station is a stopping point. I'm like, oh, that's exactly what they said in my book. <laughs> Go you. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. It does, it does, <laughs> but it wasn't anything I ever thought of. But in the 70s, uh, before the restoration, it's grimy and gross. You know, that's an important part of the story then. I think there are fun books if you love historical fiction, but especially having that personal connection with characters that you want to see, like resolve their mystery or gain their objective. I mean, obviously you don't want Grand Central Terminal to be torn down. So you're going to root for the heroine who's trying to make sure that doesn't happen. I love that. Yes. And I love um, heroines who, you know, they're, I especially love historical fiction where the heroine is kind of like hard driving and really peppy and, you know, going after what she wants. That sounds amazing. Hard driving and peppy and going after what she wants. There must be a million books like this, but for better or worse, you can't just go to that section of the bookstore. I know. You have to think of them yourself. Okay. Now, I don't know about this one for you because it hasn't been out long enough for like 
time to really tell on this, but I'm thinking about Young Jane Young by Gabrielle Zevin. Uh-huh. I think I've heard of that one. Okay. It's by the author of The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery, mm-hmm. which has been out for a little bit longer. And I was thinking about this for you because it does have strong female protagonists who are not wishy-washy, who have strong opinions. It's written in a really strong voice. But when you said that you liked Anything is Possible because you rotate the points of view and it really pulls you through the story and through the community, mm-hmm. that made me think that Young Jane Young might be a little better than mediocre for you. Yay. <laughs> so this is a novel loosely inspired by the Monica Lewinsky story. Huh. That is so timely with everything going on with Me Too right now. I think that would be really interesting. Do you like the sound of a timely novel? Yes, definitely. Okay. So in this story, the rotating points of view isn't through the characters in the community, but through women in a family who are four different generations. At the beginning of the book, we find out that Aviva Grossman was a 20-something young intern, went to work in her state senator's office. He was a family friend and they started a relationship and it ended. But then in a nod to Chappaquiddick, there's a car accident. They're in the car together and it comes out that there was this relationship between the two of them. And it also comes out that Aviva made the very bad decision to blog about her relationship with the senator. But nobody was reading her blog until they discovered it after the car wreck and they were. This is set in South Florida. What we do here in the story is we rotate through the different points of view. There's Aviva Grossman who changes her name to Jane Young and moves to Maine. So that's why it's called this. At the beginning of the story, like this point in time, she's grown up and in Maine. So we're kind of flashing back to what happened then, which is where the story gets its name. The voices are really strong and defined in this novel, especially that of the opinionated, righteously indignant about how her granddaughter has been treated a Jewish grandmother. She has such a great (laughs) voice. She's so snarky and sharp and is really good with the zingers. Sometimes they're only in her head (laughs) and sometimes she actually says them. This story has five distinct sections in different voices. So, and it kind of rotates through, like we get different lenses at what happened back then with the scandal. So we hear from her mother, we hear from her grandmother, we hear from Aviva herself. Eventually we hear from her daughter. And then there's this really interesting section that does something strange with the structure near the end. And I think is a, is an English major. I think you'll find it interesting. Oh, now I have to read that because now I need to know what it is. (laughs) That sounds really good. And I love, yeah, I really do love things that will sort of, you know, catch you off guard and surprise you that way. Okay, good. I'm happy to hear that. And then I'm also thinking, I want to say it's coincidence, but maybe my brain is hung up on the New York thing. I'm thinking about the new Anna Quinlan alternate side. Have Mm -hmm. you read her? Do you know anything about this? I have not read her before, but I know, of course, she's so beloved. She wouldn't keep terrible company with like Lori Colwin on a bookshelf. Like they're witty, Mm -hmm. they're personal, they focus on the quotidian and they like inject it with meaning and humor without going all like deep thoughts with Jack Handy on you. That is exactly what I like. You got it. (laughs) Okay. This is set in New York City. Um, We have a married couple who are almost empty nesters. Their kids are... I think they're getting ready to graduate from college, not from high school. So they're home from the summer. And they live in this little tiny neighborhood or almost a street that's a geographical anomaly in New York City. They live on a cul-de-sac. 
It's called oh. alternate side because of the parking situation. And <laughs> we have this tight little community of neighbors that live on the cul-de-sac. So we do get the rotating perspectives as you focus on the different people who live in this unique little block. Although we do have the owners versus the renters situation and they have very oh. strong opinions about each other. And you were talking about how you don't like wishy-washy female characters. Uh Nora is a woman who's kind of gone along with everything, like kind of let circumstances make her decisions, not the other way around for a long time. But she has reached the point where she's just done with it. And she's ready to like move on and make wake up and make her own decisions. And she doesn't do it in a zany way exactly. Although she has a friend to inject the nearly zany element in it, but Uh she's done. She's like going to decide what she wants and move on with her life. And this one situation that develops on the cul-de-sac in, I think it's the hot, hot summer really brings things to a head. So I don't know if it's witty, but it's definitely snarky and it deals with those everyday things, but how they have outsized meaning. How does that sound? Amazing. I love it. (laughs) That sounds so interesting. I want to give you a backup. I think if you don't like alternate side, then diving into her nonfiction is likely to be fruitful. Mm -hmm. Because first of all, I mean, she's a writer, but she's also an avowed book lover. Like she's the one who said, I would be most content. I'm botching this by the way, Maria, but I would be most content if my children grew up to think that decorating really meant to build more bookshelves. Yes. So, you know, she's a good person. (laughs) You can trust her. But Lots of Candles, Plenty of Cake would be a nonfiction memoir that if her fiction doesn't work for you, I think Anna Quinlan might work for you. Yes. And I have heard about her for so long. She has sort of been one of those people that's been on my list that I haven't really quite known, known where to start with her. And that's I feel like I have yeah. fear, like these like wonderful writers. I'm always scared. I'm going to pick the wrong one and then be turned off on them forever. So that is so helpful. That can be challenging to a reader when facing these prolific authors for the first time. Like they have so many books. Like mm-hmm. how, how do I even get in here? Yeah. And it's so hard to tell just from like the cover copy or the description online. And I mean, it could be, you know, the one that is their Pulitzer Prize winner, or their New York Times bestseller isn't the one that most grips you. You know, it's really hard to kind of um, discern that often. I, yeah, I hear you, but I'm glad that those sound okay. I need to get reading. <laughs> <laughs> well, Maria, of those three books, which one do you think you'll read next? You know, the... Fiona Davis, the masterpiece, that really, I don't know why, just something thinking about that setting in Grand Central Terminal, um, that I just, there's something about that that's like capturing my imagination that I think I would find really fascinating. I love that it was an art school, right? Mm -hmm. And it was founded by three painters, including John Singer Sargent. So this wasn't just some like homemade thing happening in some corner somewhere. Like this was legit back then. That's amazing. Yeah. There's something that I really love about stories that are based on something that was true at the time, because I feel like you learn so much about place. And I had never known that going through Grand Central Terminal all these years. Such a cool hidden world, which is something that's really neat about New York. Well, I hope the promise really delivers and I can't wait to hear what you think. Thank you so much. I can't wait to read. Oh, good. Maria, thank you so much for talking books with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Anne. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Maria today, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next, and maybe drop us the title to your favorite gorgeous cookbook as well. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 151. That's also where you should go to find the full list of titles we talked about today. 
Next week, I'm getting a crash course in can lit from book publicist and what should I read next super fan, Elham Ali, who is flipping the script and recommending Canadian literature for me based on my favorite books. Plus, she's dishing some behind the scenes dirt about publishing in the great white north. Here's just a taste. We do a competition every year. It's like fantasy league, but for publishers, you create teams, you create your own league, and then there's this third-party organization called BookNet Canada. They do data analytics, and so you can go to them for like sales data and things like that. And so they send you a catalog of all the books that are coming out between September and December of that year. And you hold a fake auction in your office between the teams. You have $200,000 to spend. You kind of pick the ones that you think will sell the best. And between September and December, you use real-time sales data to kind of see who made the best bets. That sounds so much more interesting than Final Four or whatever you call it, March Madness. We're big basketball fans in my house and this is way better, trust me. Subscribe now so you don't miss a beat or a book in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you next Tuesday. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Anne with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Anne Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Just a note about that What Should I Read Next Instagram account. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but on a pretty regular basis now, we are crowdsourcing your suggestions for your fellow listeners. It's been so much fun to see you all pile on the book recommendations, and I absolutely mean that in a good way. If you are interested, give us a follow at What Should I Read Next. Next, if you have your own crowdsourcing puzzle for our listeners, please send it our way. Thanks to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.